This week we get to study the day of the Lord, the one of the most exciting chapters in the whole Bible is before us tonight. And uh, it's important to understand and know that he has given us such amazing details about what's coming in the very near future. So let's open our Bibles to Zechariah 14 and pray. Jesus, uh, we, we want to see you right now. Lord, that's our desire is to be with you. Uh, Lord, but we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit so that even though we don't see you with our eyes, Lord, we are with you in our, in our heart. And you're, we're seated in heavenly places right now. Lord, that glorious mystery is amazing. God, I pray you would fill me with your Holy Spirit to overflowing. Lord, let the gifts of your Spirit just be glorified and magnified here. And Jesus, we pray that you would be exalted above measure this evening in our hearts. And we would leave from here just completely different than we came in. Uh, with a new expectation, a new understanding, even a new excitement and passion for your soon coming. And Jesus, we, we trust you and we believe, Lord God, that you have something for us here tonight. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, the day of the Lord is very interesting because a lot of people don't understand what you mean when you say the day of the Lord. There's a lot of confusion, even within uh, different churches and different Bible colleges. They, they say the day of the Lord and they may mean one thing and they, one church may mean another when they say the same exact thing. And so when we look at the day of the Lord, we need to have wisdom and we need to look at what the Bible says. And the way that we interpret the Bible is, for the most part, literal unless there's a, a precedent for there to be an uh, allegorical interpretation, we'll, we'll look at it literally. So as we look at the book of Revelation, that actually lays out quite nicely when you look at it and just read it for what it is. Instead of thinking that it's twists and turns and all these things, if you just lay it out, the book of Revelation is pretty easy to understand. You have the past, you have Jesus chapter 1 in the past, and you see him... him uh, uh, glorified and, and going up into heaven, and then you have the present in chapters two and three in those seven letters to the seven churches, and he's writing letters saying, "This church, you do, you guys are doing great, and you guys are struggling a little bit. And I love you all. Let's go to heaven." Then you have chapter four, and that marks the future, and everything from chapter four is future to us even now. And so, what happens right at chapter four is you see the church up in heaven singing and praising, and that's true. That's going to be a future event for us called the rapture. We'll get raptured, we'll all be up in heaven, and we're going to actually experience chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation in person. We'll get to do that ourselves. And that's a glorious time. We'll look at that another time. Then chapter 6 starts with the tribulation, and chapter 6 through 19 of Revelation is the seven-year period of tribulation upon the earth. And we looked at, we've looked at that actually quite a bit in our study in Zechariah. But we're going to be looking at the end of that, because the end of those seven years is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when Jesus comes back, and we'll see tonight, with all of his saints to earth. That's the day of the Lord. The day when the Lord comes back to fix everything. You know, it's interesting. It's, uh, there's many differences between uh, the rapture and the second coming or the day of the Lord. And one of them is the rapture. We go to meet him in the air, it says. But the, the day of the Lord, it says he comes to earth 
and his feet touch down on the earth. The two diff- totally different things. One happens in the twinkle of an eye in a moment, and the other is slow enough for everyone to observe and see. There's quite a few differences, and we can study those at another time as well. But let's get in now to chapter 14 of Zechariah and see what it has for us. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, and half the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So, this um, day of the Lord, it says, is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. The day when God is going to fix everything and judge all the nations, it is coming. So don't get lulled into thinking that nothing major is going to happen in your lifetime. Into thinking that this life is just something to get through. Because this life is not. This life is quickly approaching. It's like a train approaching a bridge that's out. If, if you don't know that that's approaching, if you're not looking out the windows ahead of you, you could just be sipping on your... You know, Chardonnay when your ascot hats enjoying, you know, your fancy train ride, not knowing that it's just about to go over a cliff. But if you're looking out the windows, you might see up ahead that there is massive events coming down the train rail line. What do you call that? Train track. That's what that's called. <laughs> so this book, this chapter is like a window to our future, where we can look out and see ahead of what's coming and we can be telling people, quit it with all the weird dress and drinks and just focus on what the Lord has for you. So, God is going to intervene in our lives. It is coming. This verse says, the day of the Lord is coming. No matter how boring your life seems, no matter how it seems like there can be no end to our suffering, His day is coming. And as we see in Acts chapter 1, and if you want to turn with me to see what I'm going to read to you, I'm going to read several verses from Acts chapter 1. We'll see that this day of the Lord was prophesied and was talked about, and it was actually part of it was experienced already. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says, um, all the apostles there, that Jesus had just gone up, Um, into heaven, and he said, wait in Jerusalem, wait, and and this will happen. Verse 14, it says, they all continued with one accord in prayer, supplication with the women and and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And and they were all praying there, and they just just stayed there all the way up until the the day of Pentecost. And it would be amazing if you and I didn't have to go to work tomorrow. Yeah, amen, he says. We didn't have to go to work, and we, we were just told by God to wait and, and pray and just read the Bible together. I think that would be so exciting. It's so fun. And look what happened when they, when they did that. Look in Acts 2.20. So they go through. They choose another disciple, the uh, apostle. Then in chapter 2, verse 20, the, the Holy Spirit has come upon them now, and it says that the day of the it was part of the day of the Lord. It was part of this prophecy of the day of the Lord. 
So Acts 2.20, it says, The sun shall be dark, turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And what, what's going on here is Peter is quoting this verse to explain to all the people who are wondering what was going on. Because all the, all the apostles and all the disciples there, they had started speaking in tongues and, and things were going kind of crazy. And, and Peter picks up on this verse to tell them this is part of what happens when the f- f- fullness of God comes into your life. And whatever those things were, those, those Holy Spirit things that were going on that day, he says that's, that's like the day of the Lord. And for you and me, as we study the day of the Lord from Ezekiel or um, Zechariah chapter 14, know that this, this type of fulfillment is available in your life spiritually now. We are going to see it practically happen, but the day of the Lord can be a today for you. We access his day by, by faith. You know, we experience his ruling, which is what we look forward to when he's going to rule the world. But we experience his reign in our hearts as we submit to him, as we as we surrender and wave that white flag and and say, God, I want you. I need you. And I'm desperate for you. We experience these great things in our life today. Um, The world will experience it on the last day of the tribulation, however. And he says in this verse back in Zechariah 14, he says, uh, he says that your spoil will be divided in your midst. So I hope that you guys are not that interested in your stuff. Because when Jesus comes, there will be no need or lure of materialism. You know, he will be sufficient for everything that we need. That's pretty amazing. And in this time of when Jesus comes in the millennium, it says there's not going to be need of money or any of those things, that everything's just going to be provided by Jesus. And so there's going to be no materialistic lure. That's going to be incredible. And um, it's interesting because they came and they asked Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Do you remember that? You guys remember? And, and Jesus had the just, I think, the best answer I've ever heard. He said, um, he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar, and give unto God what is God's. So he asked to see the, pen, the coin, and it had Caesar's face on it. Because God made your heart, he, he's, it's like his face is inscribed on your heart, so he wants your heart. He's not concerned about the money. You could literally never worry about money again in in your life if you trust the Lord. God will take care of you if your heart is 100% loyal to Him, which is just unbelievable because money is so big in our minds. All of us think about our jobs. All of us think about our bank accounts. And it's important to be wise about those things. But the the worry that comes along with that, when our flesh starts to think about it, it can so easily distract us from what the Spirit wants, which is just to to be single towards the Lord. Because he says you can't serve both God and money. But he says here, I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. So now we get into kind of the exciting uh, action movie stuff, all right? So if the Bible had an action movie chapter, this would be it. And he says, I will gather all the nations against battle of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be attacked. And it says half of it will fall. 
And just when it looks like all is lost, Jesus shows up and steps in. Just when you think there's no way the people of God can be saved, Jesus rescues them. It says in verse 3, The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So this is the second coming of Jesus. It's not his first coming, obviously. So let's contrast it. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus answered when Pilate asked him, and said, are you a king? And Are you really a king? This is kind of weird that you're before me, and yet they're calling you a king. So are you a king? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus said, Jesus now at this point in history, in the future, he is going to fight. But again, we don't have to do the fighting for him. He's going to take up the sword and just do the fighting. So. Uh, in Matthew chapter 24, it describes this event in a little bit more detail. When Zechariah just told us that he's going to fight, okay? So, great, he's going to fight. Well, Matthew 24 actually explains what it's going to look like. And it's Matthew 24, 27. He says, For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the, the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever, wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will gather, be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So there's your action movie intro. You have all these nations gathered against Jerusalem and the Antichrist is sitting there in Jerusalem thinking that he's just about to wipe out the people of God forever as is his satanic desire. And Jesus comes with clouds, it says, and, um, and with power and with great glory. And there's a sign of the Son of Man, so maybe like a cross or something, I don't know, but the whole world, it says, is going to see Jesus coming down out of the sky. Well, there's an even better description in the book of Revelation. If, you, if you're looking in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11, it describes this same event this way. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and him who sat on him was called Faithful and True. So this is Jesus, who they call Faithful and True at this time. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. His name, he he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name was called the word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That Bible verse has your name on it. That is you. You were just described in the Bible by name. Isn't that amazing? You will be on a horse following Jesus at this day, coming out of heaven. I just think that's amazing. 
white, fine linen, white and clean. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves to the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and all who sit on them, and all the flesh of the people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him and and him who sat on the horse and against his army. So I'll pause right there. So all the the nations that are gathered there, they were fighting over Jerusalem. But when they see Jesus coming and you and me, you know what they're going to do? They actually turn their guns and bombs on Jesus. And they're like, that's the real enemy. And they try to shoot Jesus, which is just insane. I don't understand. I don't get it. But they do. And it says... Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, Jesus. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So they try to shoot him up, and Jesus speaks one word, and in that one word, they all are killed. Not a very climactic battle, I guess, but pretty amazing nonetheless. And then we get to verse 4 in Zechariah. So it kind of picks up the narrative for us in verse 4. And it says, in that day, that day that all this just happened, he just slayed all the people with the sword out of his mouth and the blood and now the birds are all eating it. Okay, then he goes from where he's up in northern Israel and he kind of flies down to the Mount of Olives. And it says in verse 4, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. So that's the place where his foot finally touches down, which is just amazing. Because do you know where he ascended into heaven? Anyone have an idea? What? What? Mount of Olives? Well, you're close. It's very close to the Mount of Olives. So if you're, if you're standing in Jerusalem, there's this little valley right here, and then there's the Mount of Olives right here. You can just see it. It's like throwing a, you could like throw a rock if you had a really good arm. Right there. But then right just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, like on the slopes, just on the other side, it's like a hill. It's not a mountain like we think of Pikes Peak, and this is nothing like Pikes Peak. This is like a hill in Wash Park or something, but... It's, it's not like that. So right on the other side of the hill is this little village called Bethany. And that's where he ascended into heaven. Isn't that amazing? And so the place where he ascended is right there on the, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, which maybe he just walked up to the top, I don't know. But where he comes down, back down, he touches his feet down on the Mount of Olives. Amazing. Just amazing. But look at what happens. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. From east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move towards the north and half to the south. Whoa. This is going to be a crazy day. 
So Jesus is going to touch down, and then the Mount of Olives is going to split this way. So if this is north, if you're looking at a map, it's going to split this way, and a very large valley is going to be made, it says. Which is amazing, because you know what they found under the Mount of Olives a little while ago was a big fault line. Quite remarkable. And then verse 5, And you shall flee through the mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. Again, you guys, right there in the Bible. Did you know that? I love it. So, God will come. And he says here, this is another proof that Jesus is God, because he says, my God will come. And I uh, says, so Jesus is God. And all the saints, that's us. So verse 6, he says, And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light, and the lights will diminish. And it, it shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. This is kind of a confusing verse when you, when you look at it. Um, but basically what it's saying is that the man-made lights that, that are all over the world are going to be of no use when Jesus comes. Um, man's way to, to figure out uh, a way out of this ending, that it, you know, it kind of illustrates this picture of... Um, you, you, you may try to figure out a way. Okay, well, if Jesus is going to come back, can I, can I try to be his friend at that point? Or is there a way I can figure out my own light in that day? Can I have a man-made light in that day? In the same way that light spreads to every part of a room when you turn on the switch, so Jesus will be the only story and way that people will view the world after he comes back. There will be no need for other sources of light, other perspectives. This world lives in darkness right now, and people have their little flashlights out, and these flashlights are like artificial light sources, and that's the way they see the world. You know, without the Lord and without the Bible, people wander looking for truth and just wondering what what is the right direction. I mean, should we outlaw this? Should we... What should we think about these people? What should we think about this act? What should we think about that act? And there's no, there's all these different interpretations. There's all these different views on what truth is. In fact, Pilate, when Jesus says, you know, the truth, Pilate says, what is truth? And Pilate had a very wise statement right there. The world is just constantly in a conundrum of what is truth? And when Jesus comes back, it says that all the other light sources are, are just go away. There's, they all just fade away. And all the world, everyone there will view the world with a Jesus worldview. Because his worldview will be the only thing that exists anymore. He will be the center of everyone's attention. And will that be good or bad for this world? It will be tremendous. It will be amazing. So how, how could that apply into our lives today, this verse? You know, talking about these other lights that, that diminish at the coming of Jesus. And I just think we could really apply that into our lives when we're trying to determine what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to think, what, we're, what opinion we're supposed to have, um, how we're supposed to react to a certain situation. You know, 
let's get rid of all these other lights and let's let the just the light of his word um, guide us. And I think we'll be all right if we do that. Verse 8. And in that day there shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. So not only is this big earthquake cause this mountain to split in half and make a valley that the people can walk through. Now it says there's a giant river that flows out of Jerusalem. Unbelievable. It says half of these living waters shall flow towards the eastern sea and half of them towards the western sea, both in summer and winter shall occur. So somehow Jerusalem is raised up and everything else is lower than it. And this river, it comes out and goes both ways, which is just amazing. And it goes in summer and winter, which means it's perpetual. It doesn't end. This, this is a, a lasting change that God makes to Jerusalem in verse nine. And, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day, it shall be that the Lord is one and his name is one. Oh, my goodness. What a great. What a great verse we have. But these living waters, you know, they make us think of John chapter seven, when he said, he who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. So, again, you and I can partake in these same living waters today by faith, by believing in the Lord. And in Revelation 22, it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him come and take of the water of life freely. You know, that's how the Lord gives us, totally free. So I want us now to turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47. There's a few pages to your left. And Ezekiel, chapter 47, I believe writes a half a chapter about this water in Jerusalem. It's another prophecy, again, about the same event, the same time. It's amazing how much information we're given about this, this day. I mean, this is all one day still that this is all going on, and I just I find it incredible. But look, look with this at, at Ezekiel chapter 47. Then he brought me back, this is Ezekiel talking, to the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the front of the temple faced east, and the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. And he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running on uh, on the right side. And then the man went out to the east with a line in his hand, and he measured 1,000 cubits and brought me through the waters, and the water came up to my ankles. Okay, so this angel is taking Ezekiel on this little journey, and there's this river in Jerusalem, and he walks 1,000 cubits into the river. So this is a big river. I mean, big. And so it said in, in... Zechariah, that the valley would stretch on the north where the Mount of Olives is all the way to Azul in the south. And if you look at a map today, there's Azul. It's about four miles south of Jerusalem, directly south. So this valley is going to be like four miles wide going this way. That's how that's the information that we have right now. So he walks 1000 cubits into the river. And what's he say? It's up to his ankles. All right. Then. 
And he measured again, verse 4, 1,000 and brought me through the waters and the water came up to my knees. It's a pretty slow uh, slope there. And again, he measured a thousand and brought me through and the water came up to my waist. And again, he measured 1000 and the river was that I could not cross for the water was too deep water in which one must swim a river uh, that could not be crossed. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And he brought me. Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. I'm going to talk about all that in just one second, but look at verse 7. Then, then when I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, the water flows toward the eastern regions and goes down into the valley and enters the sea. And when it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. So what is down the valley uh, from Jerusalem? If you guys know your your geography of Israel, Jerusalem's here. And, and then, um, and then you, if you're making a valley this way, you keep going that way, you're going to run into the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is pretty dead. It's pretty salty, right? Nothing lives there. But it says that this river will empty into that sea and will heal the sea. Isn't that amazing? I just find that incredible. But going back to that, that whole part where he measured, you know, I see that this is a great encouragement for you guys that you're here on a Wednesday night when you could be at home. You could be doing something else. And this Wednesday, Wednesday we're, we're going out a thousand. And maybe it'll only get up to your ankles. But the next Wednesday, we're going to go out another thousand. We're going to go deeper in the Lord. We're going to go further in His Word, the water of His Word. And it might get up to your knees. And then the next week, we'll, you keep coming back. You keep going further. And you keep getting deeper in the Lord. And what happens eventually eventually you get to that place where you can swim in it, it says. That there are waters to swim in. Which is just the freedom of just enjoying God's presence, enjoying. And I hope you guys are getting there. Because you guys are so faithful and you've been in the Word and you've been coming and you're just always here and it's so wonderful because I hope you're getting to that place where the Word of God is just a place to swim in. Where you, you have fun. Like, look at what we find here. Look at what it tells us over there. And look at what Jesus is doing in my life now through this Bible study. And that's why we do it additionally on Wednesday night. I mean, we could just do Sundays. We could just say, yeah, Sundays is good enough. And it is good enough. But I want to get to those deeper levels. I want to go to those deeper places. And I hope you guys come with me. And you guys are, which is awesome. So... No matter what place you're at, you're in the river, you know, and I hope that we all get to that place where we're all swimming. So back in Ezekiel or Zechariah, excuse me, chapter 14, it says, uh, and the Lord is one, you know, which he's quoting actually the fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4. Which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your strength. Um, you know, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is a big deal. Uh, the church wrestled with it for like 300 years before they found a, a, a way to accurately describe it. And there's some really amazing ways that the church, through those years, kind of wrestled through that. And, and they tried to explain it different ways, saying, we know God is one. We know there's one God, only one God, but he's revealed in these three people. And, 
the three are, are totally separate, but yet they're all the one God. And, and that's such a hard thing to comprehend. And it's even a harder thing to describe. Um, but it brings glory to God. And, and here we just see another verse that says he is one. And uh, that's very important to understand. So verse 10, back in Zechariah 14, and the land shall be turned into a plain from Gibbet to Ramon south of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from the Benjamin gate to the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanael to the king's wide press. And the people shall dwell in it and no longer shall it be an utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. So there will be massive changes to the geography of Israel. Jerusalem will be raised up like on the top of a mountain and there'll be like this city on top of a hill and everything else, all the mountains that have surrounded Jerusalem that have acted kind of like walls around it or protection from armies trying to come in and attack it, but they've always been under attack. All those mountains God makes flat and he just makes a big plain there in Jerusalem. Fruitful, not like a desert plain, but like a, like a fruitful plain. And, and then everyone, no matter where you're at in Israel, what do you see? Jerusalem. And who lives in Jerusalem? Jesus. And what does Jesus look like? Light. He is the light of the world. And so everywhere you're at in Israel, you're going to be able to just look and see Jesus. And it's going to be glorious. It's going to be amazing. So Jesus, that's how he sets up his earthly kingdom. With a good view. (laughs) Verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. So this is what happens when Jesus speaks his word. All right. Kind of gross. I'm just warning you. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. Their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise up, rise up against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such, all, such also shall be the plague on the horse and on the mule, and on the camel and on the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. So, sh- so shall this plague be. So all the world... All the people who are deceived, all the people who are rebellious, God dissolves them. Like a sea slug or a slug when you pour salt on it. Gross. But kind of cool for little boys. And that's, and it's even all their stuff. It's interesting because the Lord, or the, the world in all its, um, all its, it's just so proud of everything it's made. It's so proud of its camels and its donkeys and its iPads. And all of them get dissolved at the same time. Jesus just gets rid of every distraction, everything. And nothing matters anymore except him. And a lot of people look at these, uh, this description of people melting and stuff, and they think it, it's like a neutron bomb or a nuclear war happening there. And there's, there's good reason to think that that's that. Verse 16, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up of Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king. So now it transitions from during the thousand years. So Jesus sets up his government. Everything's gone. That's bad. Everything is good. This is all great. And people start repopulating the the earth. 
All the people, it says, they're just normal people. So all the Jews who lived through the tribulation that God protected and anyone who God allowed to enter into the tribulation, which explains to us later is anyone who was favorable towards the nation of Israel. So all these people are allowed to go and live through the nation or through the tribulation. And they they start living in this world that's ruled by Jesus. And it's amazing. God restores it all back to how it was in the Garden of Eden and, and, and people live the whole time. No one dies anymore. And he restores the, the well, probably restores the canopy and, and just this great time of, of peace. And even the lions he tames and the lions are lying down with the lambs. And, you know, I want to have a dinosaur as a pet during that day. That's what I want. That's how good it's going to be. But there will be no wars. There will be no fighting. There will be because no one will need anything. Why do you need to get mad at anyone when you have everything you want? And that's how it's going to be. And Satan is locked up for those thousand years too. So, man, it is going to be awesome. And he says here that all the nations will come up from year to year to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what was the Feast of Tabernacles? That was the feast that... That, that God gave the nation of Israel to remember when he took care of them in the wilderness, in their rebellion. Remember, they could have gone into the promised land in like two weeks, but they ended up wandering for 40 years in the, in the wilderness because they didn't believe. But God still took care of them. And it was during that supernatural time where God was giving them a cloud by day and fire by night and, and, and manna to eat and supernatural water from a rock. All these supernatural things that God did that he is, is telling them to remember that he provides for them. He's the one that takes care of them. And he wants every nation, all the people in the world, no matter if you live in Australia or Africa or Europe, Asia or America, you need to go to Jerusalem once a year to keep this feast. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it shall be, look at this verse 17, because this is incredible. It, t- it says that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. And if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. So, no matter where you're at in the world, God says you need to maintain a close relationship with me. You need to remember that I provide for you. And if you don't come up, you know, after 500 years, Bob, who has lived for 500 years and gone up and seen Jesus every year for 500 years, he might start to get bored of it. And God's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. And if you do do that, there's going to be consequences in your life. And what are those consequences? You're going to be dry. What a lesson for us. Is it important to go to church all the time? Is it a law that you need to go to church all the time? No. Is it important that you go? Yes. Oh my goodness, yes. Come and honor the King. Come and remember His goodness. Abide with Him. Come and and spend time with His people just remembering and giving thanks together because it will cause rain to fall in your life. You will not be dry. And so many times in my life I've been just, it's dry in my soul because I neglected coming to the Lord or coming to church. It's just brought dryness into my life. And I'm like, why am I so dry? Why am I so frustrated and mad at everyone and in a bad mood all the time? Well, you have no rain in your heart. 
And it says here, the family of Egypt, they don't come up. Because Egypt, it's very interesting, Egypt is just fine with no rain. Did you know that? They get all their water from the Nile River. They could care less if there's no rain. But God says, I, I know you think that you're okay. I know you think that your natural resources will take care of you, that your natural abilities, that I'm just fine without church, without God. I know you're, you think you're like that. But God says, you're still not going to get any rain. You're not going to be okay. You're going to be dry. And that's a sad place to be in when you could have just come and, t- and, and been blessed. So, I like that. And it says, They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and punishment of all the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So, verse 20. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone shall sacrifice, uh, who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. And in that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So what this means... The, the horses were a very common animal in Israel. They're, they're an unclean animal. It's a very common thing. It's like your car. Okay, so he's saying, even the bells on the horses. So we, we talked about this on Christmas this year, and if you weren't there, we, we did a whole sermon on this, on this verse. Um, it was called Jingle Bells 2.0. Because we talked about how when Jesus comes back, he makes even like the horns of the cars to just be spiritually significant and important. Nothing is boring or annoying. When you're out on the street and you hear a a car honking its horn, there is nothing spiritual about that. In fact, I hate it. (laughs) I I get angry or or I'm startled and it might say Jesus' name, but I don't know if that's what what spirituality is. And so, but during this time, even the most common thing, the most common noise, the most unspiritual thing during this time has holiness to the Lord engraved on it, which means everything in the world is amazing, is blessed, and is truly spiritual truly spiritual, draws us into God's presence and makes us remember His holiness and what He is and who He is and His character. And that is amazing. That is uh, a a world that we can't even imagine is what's being described here. Um, There will be a world where nothing distracts you from Jesus or nothing is more important than Jesus to you. 